This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and Jay Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coast to Coast, only on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams in Newport Beach, Southern California, a bright and sunny day here. Bob, uh, I write a blog called May It Please the Court, and I know that you write a couple. I, I do write a couple blogs, uh, Law Sites and Media Law. I don't get to see the sun all that often since I live in Massachusetts, but occasionally it shines here. Uh, Craig, today we're going to talk about uh, the Supreme Court and a little bit about the end-of-term uh, wrap-up of the court. There been some big changes and some big developments at the court this year. Well, the death of Chief Justice William Rehnquist, the resignation of nomination or nominee Harriet Myers, and the controversial choices of Justice Samuel Alito and Chief Justice John Roberts have made for a very interesting year. Not to mention that uh, there have been some fairly provocative cases uh, uh, that justices have heard in recent months and decided in recent months. Yeah, and some of those decisions have focused on the Clean Water Act, police searches, campaign finances, and the future of detainees at the Guantanamo Bay prison camp. Well, we're going to talk about those and some of the other developments in the term this year. Uh, joining us to talk about these are two special guests. First of all, uh, is Rex Heinke. Rex is a partner at the law firm of Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld in Los Angeles. He uh, not only watches the court very closely, but uh, heads the National Appellate and Litigation Strategy Group at Aiken, at, uh, Aiken Gump. Uh, he's handled hundreds of appeals, writs, and motions in federal and state courts throughout the country. Welcome to the program, Rex. Well, thank you so much for having me. Bob, our other guest is Tony Morrow. Tony's the Supreme Court Correspondent for Legal Times, American Lawyer Media, and Law.com. He's been covering the Supreme Court for various publications for more than 25 years. He's a legal correspondent for the First Amendment Center as well. Welcome, Tony. Good to be with you. Well, here's an open question for both of you. What do you think was the most important development at the Supreme Court this year? Well, uh, uh, maybe I'll, I'll go first. Uh, hard to boil it down to one because, it, as you said, it's been a, uh, a year of tremendous uh, change with the new chief justice and uh, a new associate justice. And every time there's a, even one new justice, it's an entirely new court, but now we have two. But I guess I think probably the uh, the uh, what this term will be remembered for in the history books will be for the decision issued on the final day of the court. Uh, uh, in late June um, on Guantanamo detainees, the Hamdan versus Rumsfeld decision. Uh, and it stands as a pretty strong um, rebuke of the Bush administration's legal strategy in the war on terror. Um, and I think that kind of uh, pushback from uh, from the judicial branch of government is, uh, is, is a, a very significant Development. I think we've already seen in the last, even in the last few days, the uh, the impact that that's had, and it's going to continue to have uh, considerable impact. Rex, do you I, agree with that? I, yes, I was going to say I certainly agree with uh, Tony that Hamdan is the most important case this term. In fact, it may be the only case that really gets into the category of history books or blockbuster. 
think one of the things that it really illustrates is the increasing importance of Justice Kennedy on the court because it's one of the 5-4 decisions this year where his vote was decisive. There were 12 cases this year, I'm sorry, 17 cases this year decided by a 5-4 majority. And in 12 of those, that is 70%, he was in the majority. So his vote on close cases has now become pretty decisive. Do you think he's the new Sandra Day O'Connor? Well, I think that it was Sandra Day O'Connor first and him second when she was on the court. And with her leaving the court and being replaced by Justice Alito, who's considerably more conservative, he's now moved into number one place as the key swing vote on a number of issues. And I think we'll continue to be that way as long as we have the current composition of the court. I think that's definitely true. And this is also a role, I might add, that uh, Justice Kennedy seems to relish. Uh, those of us who cover the court sometimes call him the uh, uh, the agonizer-in-chief because he, he uh, uh, wears his, uh, his decision-making on his sleeve and, and, and often tells everybody how how uh, hard it is to make these decisions and and um, and and I think likes being at the very the fulcrum of the court I'm sorry I, I just wanted to ask I, I there was a uh, uh, an essay uh, last week by by Stuart Taylor in the National Journal titled Supreme Confusion in which he kind of characterized the court's term for its its failure to achieve the kind of consensus that uh, John Roberts talked about early on. Uh, and uh, you know, what do you what do you make of that? There's there's a sense that the justices are kind of trying to get in position to make their their own their own positions known on the cases rather than to try and develop consensus. Well, I think that uh, that was a striking feature, and I wrote about it too. That uh, uh, about the failure to reach consensus at the end of the term, especially, and I think it was remarkable mainly because the the first part of the term was so harmonious. Uh, I'm beginning to think that it was merely just sort of human nature. You have two new uh, members of the court, and everybody tries to be on best behavior at the beginning, where you and you don't want to uh, uh, bring up uh, divisive issues. But by the time of the, the end of the term rolled around, and the hard, really hard cases came out, they uh, reverted to form and and uh, it's. I guess it's probably too much to expect that some of these justices who've been there for quite a while will will uh, suddenly, you know, drop their positions or compromise their positions. But it sure would have been nice, at least from the point of view of somebody who had to read uh, 150 pages of decisions in an hour uh, and write about them. Um, I, there were times when I felt like uh, I wish they could just uh, get along and maybe uh, set aside that. You know their need need to uh, write a concurrence, a partial concurrence. Uh, it was very uh, frustrating to report on. <laughs> a one paragraph majority opinion would make your life easier. It sure would. It would. Uh, uh, it, the, I, I don't think I'll ever uh, get that. But uh, but it, I, and I think it's not just for me. Hopefully, it's not just for me that I'm speaking. It's just lower court. 
judges and uh, and lawyers who have to apply these decisions uh, they end up uh, looking at different parts of the opinion and uh, finding parts that support their own views and then those decisions are appealed and it kind of comes back up again to the Supreme Court and we haven't really resolved anything well yes if the Supreme Court doesn't speak clearly it uh, hasn't for quite a long time. You get these decisions where, you know, this justice de- joins in Part 1C, but not Parts 1A and B, and joins in 4D, but not the other parts of the opinion, and you have to sit around and count heads and have a chart to try and figure out what the majority rule is. It's full employment for lawyers, but it's tough on lower court judges and clients and it, when lawyers are giving advice to figure out what the law is. In contrast to the California Supreme Court, for example, where there's great unanimity and not very many dissents, and certainly not this, you know, one from category A and one from category B and two from category C. You think it's Robert's job to try and whip that into shape and see if he can develop the unanimity that exists elsewhere? Well, yeah, it's it's that's hard. It's hard to ask uh, a, a chief justice, especially a new chief justice to uh, to accomplish that. Uh, they're, they're all sort of sizing each other up, and it's, it is uh, difficult. But he has, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has spoken publicly on this. Maybe he was trying to drop hints with his colleagues that uh, uh, if they could try to achieve consensus, uh, he would very much appreciate it. And, you know, over time, he may be able to to get to that point. Well, I don't think we should expect unanimity if by that you're talking about nine zip decisions or eight one. I don't see that as having any prospect of ha- happening in difficult cases. What would be nice is if you're going to have a 5-4 decision, at least you know what the majority said the rule was. Do you think there's going to be any type of a legislative response to the kind of confusing opinions that come out of the Supreme Court? Well, I don't know that there's much that they can do about it. I mean, in individual cases, uh, certainly, you know, what we're seeing this week on the Hamdan case uh, and on how what to do next regarding um, Guantanamo detainees represents a congressional response to a divided opinion. Uh, and And... Even there, yes, if, if the court had spoken a little more clearly, we might have a clear path ahead. But as it is, there's several responses. Uh, one, to uh, for Congress to enact the type of military commissions that the Bush administration wants. Another approach is to use the existing court-martial uh, uh, system uh, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, there are a couple of different avenues to go in, and, and that's I think that's what Congress is trying to hash out right now. Well, there was another big decision, that Rex, this year that came out, uh, Randolph versus Randolph, Scott and Janet, who uh, got a little marital tiff that led into uh, led some police into the bedroom, and uh, Scott said no, and Janet said yes, and they found cocaine and prosecuted Scott. Uh, was that a significant opinion from the criminal law standpoint? Well, it's not insignificant, but it really doesn't change the law very much. 
certainly for the parties and if you have that kind of situation, but out there in the real world, that kind of thing doesn't happen very much. I think what may have been more significant was the indication in the Hudson case that several justices are still thinking about either throwing out or radically cutting back the exclusionary rule. That would be a real change in the law that uh, would be quite fundamental. Why did the Supreme Court grab the Randolph case if it wasn't as significant as as, uh, you don't think it is? Well, you never know why the Supreme Court grants review because they never explain why they grant it and they certainly don't explain why they deny it. I don't mean to say it's trivial. I simply mean to say that in terms of doctrine, it doesn't really change the basic doctrine. I know that some of the cases we've talked about from a law context and the, the Guantanamo case had had pretty widespread public appeal, but I wonder from the from the point of view of of law practice, uh, there were a couple of cases this term, uh, the uh, the eBay uh, Merck Exchange patent case for one that kind of talked about the standard for injunctive relief. Uh, do you see uh, that as a significant case or others that are significant for their impact on, on, say, the practice of law or cases that only a lawyer could love? Well, that one is very significant if you've got a patent law case because the rule had been that if a patent law violation was found, you automatically got an injunction prohibiting any activity that violated the patent. Uh, As a result, if you were a patent holder and could prevail, you had an enormous club over the defendant. This is not the rule in other areas of the law where you have to show other things to get an injunction. And indeed, if you looked at the statute that was involved in the case, it was kind of hard to see why it was automatic. Uh, Because the Federal Circuit said it was so. (laughs) Well, the Supreme Court had said it was so. But um, what the case really involves is something called patent trolls. Patent trolls are companies or individuals who go out and buy up a lot of patents and then look around to see they can find anybody they can claim uh, are violating the law. And if they did, then they'd threaten a lawsuit and say, as was threatened in the BlackBerry case, that we're going to shut down your whole system unless you pay us a huge ton of money. And the Supreme Court certainly cut back on that. There is a, I wanted to mention a case that uh, lawyers would love that didn't get much attention this term, the Gonzalez-Lopez case, which really strengthened uh, the right to counsel, the the right to the counsel of one's choice. And I think uh, a lot of lawyers, uh, when they look in the mirror, think, uh, you know, I'm the best lawyer for my client, and uh, uh, no one else could do as good a job as I could. And the, the Supreme Court, in a way, ratified that by saying that uh, if a judge improperly uh, restricts the right of a client to have the counsel of his or her choice, uh, that's a very very serious structural problem in the trial that would result in, uh, you know, reversal of a conviction. And... uh, uh, you know that it's not an issue. It's not something that comes up all that often. But I think if uh, if lawyers were looking for a bit of a um, an ego boost that uh, and a reminder that they do they, who is right that they have an important role, uh, this was this uh, certainly did that. 
And it was unclear until the court decided. I mean, it wasn't just the right to counsel, but the right to counsel of one's choice. Right, that's right. Well, which, whether which you, the error was structural or not, whether you had to show any kind of prejudice, which is obviously very difficult to do. We've talked about some of the best cases. Uh, which one would you peg as one of the worst cases to try and understand? Do you think Rapinoe's class uh, falls into that category? <laughs> well, that was very difficult. In fact, if you tracked the, the stories that were written through the day, uh, at first it was written up as a serious blow to the Clean Water Act, and then once we got around to figuring out that Justice Kennedy's concurrence was the controlling opinion, um, uh, then it suddenly, the coverage certainly turned into, you know, this is not so bad for the Clean Water Act, uh, because he he uh, espoused a more expansive definition of uh, waterways that are covered by the Act. Um, uh, but that was that was pretty. That was a hard one to sift through. Well, for those of you who are, you know, trying to grab these opinions on the fly and get something out on your blogs or in the media immediately, I suggest in the future that if it's a five-four decision. You look and see if Kennedy concurred, and if he did, read it, and that's probably what the decision means. And that's another case where Kennedy was the decisive vote. And what about the significance of some of the other members of the board? I mean, obviously, they all have their roles to play, but uh, uh, what about Justice Breyer? I mean, do you think his character on the court changed at all this year? Well, uh, he he wrote a lot more dissents than he usually uh, does, uh, and um, I think he he was very important. I th- my sense also at a personal level is that he is, he misses Justice O'Connor quite a bit. He and O'Connor had forged some alliances that were very um, useful in resolving cases, and now that she's gone, he's uh, on his own a little bit more and, and uh, in, more in a dissenting uh, role, um, and I think he was quite frustrated and exhausted by the end of the term. What about, you know, there's, there's uh, I mean, you mentioned the, the historical uh, significance of, of, of the Guantanamo decision in terms of the, the history books and this, this term, uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of the talk has been what this term foretells about what the Roberts Court will look like in general and, and you know, down the road over the years. Uh, what are you What are you seeing? What's the, how is the Roberts Court shaping up, and 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 uh, how does it differ from from uh, from the courts before it? Well, to me, Roberts, of course, replaced Chief Justice Rehnquist, and you basically got one conservative replacing another one. When Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor, you got a conservative replacing a moderate. If you continue to have the current composition of the court, you're going to see more and more decisions that are going to be regarded as conservative decisions. It's going to take a while for that body of law to build up, but it's going to start building up, already has started to build up, and will continue to build through the years until there's another change in the court's composition. So what you're saying is that the, it's not the chief justice is not the, responsible for the composition of the court, obviously. But to what extent does the chief justice uh, drive the character of the court, drive the direction of the court? Well, the, it, there's a lot of 
debate about that. And uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist always used to say that he was, you know, just one of nine, and you know, uh, they were all as independent. All the uh, other eight were as independent as hogs on ice, and uh, there wasn't much he could do about it. And I think that's true to an extent. Uh, but uh, you know, a chief justice also sets a tone. Um, certainly, Earl Warren had a major uh, influence over his colleagues. Um, but I think uh, it's not something that happens right away. It's going to take a while. And I, th- um, I, I, I agree with uh, Rex that if there's if Chief Justice Roberts is successful, that we're going to see a more conservative uh, trend. But but not not uh drastic uh, it's it'll be more incremental over over time i don't think we're going to see roe versus wade overturned uh, you know immediately or the exclusionary rule overturned either uh, although i think rex is right that this hudson versus michigan case certainly sets the stage for that but i i think it's going to take several more cases several terms before we see a clear picture Well, we're going to take a look into the future and look at that picture in just a moment. We're going to take a short break right now. When we return, we'll discuss those cases that will come before the Supreme Court in the future. Much more when we come back. Coast to Coast, return in 60 seconds. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Our guests today are Rex Heinke, a partner at the firm of Aiken Gump, and Tony Morrow, Supreme Court Correspondents for The Legal Times, American Lawyer Media, and Law.com. Tony, before we took the break, you were uh, prognosticating perhaps a little bit on uh, Chief Justice Roberts. If you're Chief Justice Roberts, what's on your agenda for this next term? 
Well, um, one thing that might be, and, and you know, they always say that we're just uh, we 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 don't set out for, to fill our agenda with cases that we want. It's it's just what comes in through the front door. Uh, but he he during confirmation hearings he said uh, he thought the court could decide more cases than it is deciding now. And uh, this past term, uh, his first term, the court only issued 71 written uh, opinions in argued cases, which is, I guess, the the lowest number since the Civil War. So obviously he hasn't uh, succeeded on that front so far. And he may be trying to, you know, subtly jawbone his colleagues to get them to perhaps take a look at more cases um although that's you know it's it's it can't be done single-handedly or or, or uh, quickly well, rex the, as, as craig points out the court's already beginning to line up its agenda for next year uh can you tell us a little bit about what's coming up down the pike uh sure uh, hot button issues abortion is going to be back uh, on the table with a actually two partial birth abortion cases where the question is whether or not they're constitutional because they have no exception in them for uh, a woman's health and whether she needs an abortion to protect her health. Uh, That's obviously going to be one of the hottest issues, I think, before the court. Another one that may not be of interest to everyone, but is going to be, I think, important to the business community and also may be a real bellwether in terms of um, where at least Justice Alito and I think Chief Justice Roberts are as a punitive damage case. Uh, Justices Scalia and Thomas don't believe that there are any due process limits on punitive damages. The court uh, in recent times has imposed some limits. Uh, this case is going to ask the question of how many or which other limits should be imposed, if any, and we'll have to see how Justice Alito and Chief uh, Justice Roberts vote there. There is the environmental case about greenhouse gases, which has been styled as deciding whether global warming is okay. It's not going to decide that, but nevertheless should give us some indication of what the new justices think about uh, environmental issues and statutory interpretation. Um, There's also going to be cases about uh, schools and racial preferences. So there are a lot of issues uh, before the court that are going to get the public's attention and be important to everyone in the country. Tony, one of the cases from last year, uh, probably one of the more reported cases around the country, the Kelo eminent domain decision, kind of came full circle this year, and Suzette Kilo was finally booted out of her house in New London, Connecticut. There was a quite a backlash against two of the justices that decided that case uh, from New England. Have you seen, since you're there every day, attending this and listening and following this, do you see any type of reaction of the justices to public opinion on issues that they decide? Well, I, that was a remarkable uh, decision. I don't think I've seen, except for Bush versus Gore, I don't think I've seen as strong a, a uh, public reaction to a Supreme Court decision as, it, as there was to that one. And I think they they noticed it. The court noticed it. Uh, and, in fact, Justice Stevens defended his decision. Uh, 
Uh, he said, if, in fact, it, it wasn't his preference, his personal preference, to rule the way he did. We, he felt that the law and the precedents demanded that he, that the court uphold the right of municipalities to uh, use eminent domain in a fairly broad way uh, as part of some kind of economic development plan. Uh, so the court, I think, does notice uh, public opinion uh, to, a, to a degree, and um, that certainly was one of those cases. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I wanted to give you each uh, an opportunity to uh, offer any final thoughts and tell our listeners how they can find uh, find out more about you. Uh, uh, Rex, uh, any final thoughts on this topic? Well, I think the, maybe something we haven't talked about at all is to watch the health of the liberal justices on the court. Because if one of them were to retire or to die, then there could be a very big swing in where the court is. Because one vote at this stage could change a lot of decisions. And also the midterm congressional elections, if the Democrats pick up seats in the Senate, will limit President Bush's ability to the kind of nominee that he'd like to have on the court. And Rex, you're at Aiken Gump. That's uh, AikenGump.com, is that right? Uh, yes, you can find us on the web, Aiken, A-K-I-N, Gump, G-U-M-P. And uh, the, my stories are on uh, law.com with good frequency, and uh, uh, and I'll be uh, uh, trying to figure out what the big cases are for the fall term, and we'll be writing about them through the, uh, through the summer. Tony, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but you've got a, a piece on Legal Times and Law.com today about the the capital cases uh, and how the court stands on that, and I would commend our readers to look for that and read it. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We certainly appreciate your participation and your insight. Uh, we look forward to following up with you perhaps again next year at the end of the term and see if we can do another wrap-up. And Bob, I guess we will be talking again next week. That's right. Thanks to each of our guests, and good to talk to you, Craig. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.